Hi, and welcome to this live CM Conversations webinar. I'm your host, Elizabeth Edmonds, and I'm a recruitment consultant with CM Life Science, a search firm with teams of global recruitment specialists serving markets throughout the life science sector. Today's discussion is all about providing actionable ways that we can improve diversity in clinical trials, which is a major talking point throughout the clinical trial space right now. To do this, I am joined by a panel of clinical service providers that I know are incredibly passionate about this subject. Obviously, conversations like these are only the beginning of addressing diversity in clinical trials, and we're aware of how important diverse voices are. So we'll continue to provide podcasts, articles and webinars on this matter. If you'd like to get involved or know anybody who would be great to speak to, please get in touch. Anyway, let's get started and meet today's panel. Uh, Stuart, would you like to introduce yourself? Thanks, Beth. Uh, Stuart Goldblatt, been in the industry about 28 years. Uh, most recently was uh, in charge of organizational effectiveness at a large CRO and now uh, industry consultant. John? Thanks, Stuart. Yeah, hey, John Reitz. I'm a co-founder and CEO of a company called Thread, and we conduct decentralized studies and being inclusive in study design is important to us. So really looking forward to the conversation uh, with you guys. Matt, over to you. All right, Matt Walls. I'm the CEO of Trialby. I um, got introduced to clinical research back in the early 2000s when I was a developer at Microsoft and have since really had a passion for bringing new products to market. And Trialby is working to reimagine the way we do patient uh, and recruitment, basically. So I'm really excited to talk about this topic today. Great. Thanks, guys. Um, so when we talk about diversity within clinical trials, we know, obviously, we must consider a variety of factors such as uh, age, gender, uh, racial background, socioeconomic background. Um, with this in mind, what do you think our biggest challenges are at the moment? You know, is it like a, a mistrust in the industry? Is it the lack of medical education? Like, what are you guys finding? If we could start with Matt, that would be great. Sure, I'll kick off. Um, thanks, Elizabeth. You know, I think I think all, all of the above probably check the box. Um, it, there's, a, there's a community level and, and a trust level. There's obviously a component to how we um, choose from the start of a study to have a more representative population. And so there's goal setting at the top, there's trust at the bottom. I think one of the, the, the biggest, I guess, barriers I think is that it's just not ingrained in how we think throughout the organization. It becomes something we may talk about in one, one area or another, but from, from, the, you know, from the moment the science starts to get developed and you start to look at feasibility and you start to look at optim optimizing the protocol and you go into recruitment, it's just not ingrained throughout that process. I think that's probably you know, where we sit, one of the barriers that, that we hope to have a, a bigger impact on, but I think that, that's, that's one of the challenges for the, the sponsor level anyway, from my perspective. John, are you finding sort of similar situation? Yeah, similar. We've got a lot of work to do, you know, um, to make clinical trials look like the world we live in. Um, we all know we have the data, like nobody, and, and frankly, it's not lost on anybody. We all know the challenges. We all know the, the difficulties. We all know the gaps that we have. And I think, you know, Matt's 100% right. It, it takes a group of people, like no one company is solving for all of these. We're all doing our part. And and what I would say is when we zoom out, you know, one of our mission statements at Thread and we think about our one five thirty mission, this five mission is actually, when we think about diversity, we're thinking about other areas of making studies more inclusive, not by sort of fixing the symptoms of the problem, but going after some of the core challenges that clinical trials have, which is the product of a clinical trial, like how it actually runs and is, and is completed, um, is actually not inclusive naturally. 
And so there's some things that we're trying to fix in how clinical trials are run, how you can participate, where you can participate is important. So you'll hear me use a lot of these words today, but we think about these inclusion points as you know, how do we be more diverse, obviously being a topic for today, but also how do we make studies more convenient? How do we make them more remote? How do we make them more transparent? And how do we make them more accessible for people with physical limitations? And so there's a lot of, of sort of unpacking that needs to happen here. Um, but, but I 100% agree, agree with Matt. And there's, there's a lot of challenges. And it's actually at this point, it's about doing, not talking anymore. We all know what the problems are. We have to start materially moving the needle. And, and I think that's uh, a lot of what we'll get to unpack today. So, John, I've got a question about that, uh, doing instead of talking. So what metrics are you guys using to measure your progress as it relates to diverse and inclusive patient populations? Yeah, sure. Thanks. I mean, there we have a series of key performance indicators, so KPIs, that we track against all of our points of our mission statement, our 1, 5, and 30. And so in the 5, there's about 8 different KPIs we track. And I'll tell you, they're not, some of them are hard metrics, some of them are soft. So let, let me give a few examples. So in one, you know, we have uh, certain sponsors and customers that have been moving to use their decentralized study designs and they're actually cohorting populations. So they're saying, hey, when we fill up a group that meets this age or race or geographic background, we're now gonna cap this and move to another one. So when, we, when that happens in a study, we can actually track how many times that's happening, how many times those caps are being reached, what's the time to reaching a cap? So you're actually showing, are you filling certain groups faster than others, which actually can indicate that you're not optimized to support an individual or a group of individuals. Um, and some of the other KPIs that I'll tell you are harder to track um, is things like um, when you think about being transparent, you can put systems and tools in place to make the consenting and continuous opt-in and other things transparent. But really the only metric you can get is we get patient feedback in design, but throughout a study, so participants and sites give us feedback in our model and we look at the feedback and we ask questions, not saying how transparent was the study. We ask questions that kind of get you to, can you figure out if people understood what they signed up for six months after they signed up? And so some of those, Stuart, are just some examples, but what I would tell you is things like accessibility, you know, where we built a number of features, those are, it's whether they're being used or not is the KPI and that's a good indicator that you're enrolling that population to begin with. So hopefully that helps. It does. It does. So how are we improving or ensuring quality then when it comes to using technology? You know, we're all comfortable with going to a research site to actually look at the documents and, and go through a monitoring visit in person. How are we doing that? How do you envision us doing that, let's say, in a year or two from now to be more efficient from where we're at today? Matt, if it's okay, I'll continue the statement and throw to you. I don't yeah. need to cut off, but but Stuart, there, there's a piece that you just mentioned, which is we're all comfortable to go to a site and you're making an assumption that maybe people aren't comfortable to do things at home or on their go. And I'm not saying you are making an assumption, but let me just clarify for the audience. It's actually an incorrect assumption. The data actually shows the reverse. So when we do uh, metrics, and we've been doing DCTs, hundreds of them for five years now. When you look at all the data we've seen in decentralized studies and you actually go back to participants and ask them, whether it's hybrid or full DCT, would they participate in this again? Was this model effective for them? The rates are actually higher than and higher in, in NPS and performance than a traditional site visit. What we see the best inflection point in the data though is hybrid DCT, where it's a hybrid of I go to site for this, I do this remotely. That's actually our business model. That's what we're supporting. That's where augmenting sites and moving the needles there. So what I would tell you is 
that is actually there. And when you do that, data quality is actually slightly higher. And let me tell you why. Because when you're capturing data directly from people in their home, a majority of that data by reg definition is e-source, meaning it goes input one end, output another. When we do other forms of data entry, as you know, for your whole career, you enter something in, somebody then enters it again, somebody then reviews it, someone then changes it, and we go down this path. So I would actually argue that while there are two different routes to data quality in direct entry versus non-direct entry, and there are challenges on either side, neither is perfect, there's actually an inherent um, push in quality when you get it upon entry. And so that's what we see and the data supports it in the day we publish. Matt, I'm, I know you have a lot of comment here too. Well, you, you just brought to my mind how, how often were diaries completed in the car waiting to go in and see the doctor, you know? <laughs> how was I feeling on Tuesday? How was I feeling on, you know, and, and that, sure. that, was, that was the state before data collection tools came in. And in terms of quality, when you have the tools, you know when the data was captured, you know it was captured at the right time, and you know it's, it's, it's in that time period. So it's, it's more truthful data, I guess, if you would. Um, so I would think there's a, there's a huge bias towards better quality just by the fact that, that you can start to look at the data coming in, you know it's real time, and you know it's when it's meant to be asked as opposed to you know, five minutes before you're, you're, you're getting ready to see the position. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of bend off that. So we don't deal a lot like John does, uh, in study conduct, we're kind of more front end in the patient recruitment side. And I think when, when we look at the quality, it's not so much about a data collection. I think it's more about the quality of the recruitment cycle and, and the population that we're, or the cohort that we're able to assemble at the end. And there's a, there's a few different areas and it kind of intersects too with, with the question around how are we tracking? And so we, we kind of have three means at our disposal, uh, you know, in, in our recruitment process. One is an experience database. So we've done lots of recruitment projects. We track tons of metrics and we capture them all in, in a big database. And so we can, we are starting to historically look at that and say, how can we start to track diversity in that? And, and we're at our infancy, right? We're, we are at our infancy. When I opened up saying it needs to be more embedded throughout, you know, we're in that category too. But that's kind of the first step, because then when a sponsor comes with a protocol or a CRO and says, hey, how, what would it look like to recruit for this protocol? We go to that experience database. And then from that, we develop a trial strategy. And that trial strategy, again, is a, is a, is a massive piece of data that, you know, week by week tracks things such as patients per site per month that we can recruit and cost per referrals and, and all these data points. And we're looking at that as an area to start to track. Do we have diversity targets? Now, for us to have diversity targets, it generally means the, the party we're recruiting for has diversity targets, and that's an area that is at its infancy. Nobody's coming to us with a protocol and saying, and by the way, we need this patient population at the end. That hasn't happened yet, um, but we're gearing up because we believe that is what's going to happen. And then ultimately, you know, getting back to your question about quality, the cohort that gets recruited at the end will hopefully be close to representative of the patient population. Sorry, Matt, just a, a quick question there as well. So is that where it kind of begins for you when, you know, the, the sponsor or the client or whoever you're working with, they set out like a specific diversity target? Is that sort of dependent, you know, on the drug and the study, everything like that? That would be the ideal scenario. It's not reality today, but I, I believe that's where we're headed is okay. as organizations start to look at this more, they'll come in uh, when, when they look at feasibility, diversity yeah. and a representative is part of that, that feasibility. Um, and sometimes feeds back into optimizing the protocol. You know, a lot of our, 
our protocols, uh, you, if you know me, you've, I've said this a hundred times before, um, they get copied and pasted. They're not really thought through from the start for that particular study. And so you end up with some exclusion and inclusion criteria that cuts out certain demographics that may not actually have a scientific or clinical basis for that study and that protocol. It just happened to be, you know, the fastest way to get the new protocol for the next study. And so, you know, I think our hope for the industry is that when we look at protocol development, when we look at feasibility, as diversity becomes more intertwined into the fabric of how we work. Um, that those, those things are considered and started to, to have an impact that, that leads to somebody then coming to us with a target. So, oh, right. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I'm sorry to interrupt you there, Stuart. I was just saying. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, obviously, you've mentioned uh, that that's sadly not quite the reality yet. And I appreciate, obviously, it's a very broad question. Uh, but do you think realistically it's going to be sort of in the near future with all the, you know, adoption of decentralized models and hybrid models and things? Is it? looking realistic that it's going to be part of protocol design soon or? I personally think it will be, yeah. And I think decentralized clinical trials is where it's gonna start because by nature of those trials, they tend to have the availability to go deeper into the communities and go farther away from the typical clinical research site, which opens up the door to having a more representative population. So I, I think that's where it will go. The time period, I, I don't know, but, um, it wouldn't surprise me for the next 12 to 18 months, we start to see that shift. John, Stuart, I don't know what you guys think. Well, I was going to ask about using technology. How can we better support telemedicine pre-screening um, to, to fill the uh, start of a trial quicker uh, with those folks who may not be in a large population area where they are aware of a clinical trial? How, how can we do that? Yeah, that, that's a great, that is something we're actually doing today. And I think that's a, a fantastic point. So um, we talked about trust being one of the barriers for having a more representative patient cohort for your clinical trial. Sometimes trust can be exaggerated by the fact that you're far away from this clinic. You don't know the staff, you don't know the people. Um, and telehealth is a unique opportunity during recruitment and enrollment to engage that patient. And we're playing with that in a lot of ways. Um, one way is we, we put every patient on the phone with uh, who passes an online assessment. You know, am I, am I qualified? With you know, a few simple questions, we put them on the phone with a nurse um, who is deeply trained on the protocol, but also understands the patient population she's speaking to or he's speaking to. Another way that we're doing that is what we call an engagement room. So this is, think about pre-recruitment. So maybe you wanna start recruiting a few months before your first site's online and your first patient comes in because you wanna sort of build up demand and then hopefully accelerate on the back end. And we're looking at how to use video communications and, and a patient communication plan and telehealth as a means to keep people engaged. Um, I think all that builds trust, which is you know a huge, a huge barrier. So I think telehealth's biggest impact can be in trust, if you ask me, and, and helping to increase motivation. It also spans a much wider net, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you about the the sort of telehealth side of it and, you know, obviously putting people in touch with like the clinicians and relevant people, because a lot of people are simply kind of unaware of what actually participating in a trial entails at the moment, aren't they? And how they can still sort of assist in the logistical barriers that can be removed from it. Yeah. Yeah. And Matt's right, too. I think, you know, when you know telehealth has been our platform for since the beginning and the telehealth is a feature, right? Telehealth is a way to communicate with people. It is not a 
product on its own. And so when you look at telehealth, telehealth facilitates things like when uh, Thread and Charlie work together, right? We facilitate this mix of they're recruiting and then they come into another telehealth and they don't know, nobody knows any different. They're just saying, hey, I get to see the doctor here and the doctor here and, and I get to see them on, on this video screen and then I drive in to see them. What I would tell you, Elizabeth, is the core to this is, is one of the kind of adaptations we have to drive in clinical trials of the future is around flexibility. And we say this word very simply, but it is not simple. And let me give an example. When we think about either screening recruitment or when someone initially gets randomized into a study or they're in you know, month three, month four, this ability to give choice and options to people. So whereas in our real world today, we all know we have choices, right? We can choose to do something you know, remotely in our home. We can drive to the store. We can have it shipped to us. We have options in a clinical trial because we're not shopping. We're putting experimental medications in people's bodies, we do much more complex work. And so the reality is to take a visit and say, this visit, you can choose. Do you want to do this with a home health nurse? Do you want to do this on your own? Do you want to do this in the clinic? Is not as straightforward as, as I think we give it, you know, or tend to think about it. But there are a lot of visits and we start to see, see this where you can introduce flexibility in the recruitment phase, like Matt mentioned in the screening, but also later down the road where there are choices where you could say, hey, for this particular visit, the site is, is sort of enabling you to attend this visit from your home, send a nurse to you or have them come in the clinic, what would you prefer? And so when we think about transparency and trust, remember that choice and the ability to make a choice in the thing that I trust the most, the modality I trust the most is actually a way to be more transparent and supportive in clinical trials. And I would tell you that this is something you know, that is going to take years. It's gonna take time. We've been talking about this for two years. We've seen early implementations of it. But at the same time, it's really complicated to, to deploy, not on the technology side. I could do it right now. It, it's the operational focus of us helping research sites who want to do this, who are learning how to adapt their models, um, making sure that participants are clear that why they have a choice for this visit, not that visit. So they're training other components. So Elizabeth, to kind of lean in to that point, there are a lot of other options that really take this and move it forward to the future. And flexibility is a key one that actually does drive transparency and trust when done correctly. Brilliant. I'm going to throw out a real hot one. I don't have a cell phone. I don't have a laptop. I'm living in a real remote rural area. How can we capture those potential patients and, 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 and engage them through technology if they don't have technology? What do we do? It is funny that you just actually said that, Stuart. We've literally just had a quick question from the chat saying, uh, hello from Atlanta. And how do we propose addressing uh, areas of rural health where patients may or may not have access to broadband for telehealth? Uh, the South in particular has a high level of healthcare deserts and we'd love to see ideas for recruitment from those areas. So that was perfect timing, Stuart, yeah. So that was a very, very smart person. It was, <laughs> so, yeah, it's so a big one we figured out. What's then. the answer? What's the answer? Yeah, Matt, do you want me to jump in first or do you want to start? Yeah, John, I think you're probably better skilled on that one. I don't know about that, but I'll take a first shot at my friend. You can, you can back me up. Um, so a couple of things. One is let, let's, let's remove assumptions. So you would be essentially less than 1% of the U.S. population. You'd be somewhere between 1% to 12%, depending on where you're at in Asia, PAC, Europe. Western, Eastern, slightly different in Latin America. And so just to be clear, the where you're located has a lot to do with the response to this question, Stuart. So in a, as a global organization doing studies in 50 plus countries, I have to be very clear, the answer to this question differs. I feel like it's got kind of a US bend in its, in its, in its question, but just to be clear, 
Um, there actually is a really easy solution for that. Um, one is when you look at that population, those groups, um, there's a couple of things. Fundamentally in the platform set, um, we had to build out a number of features that allow telehealth to be done on lower levels of broadband. So when people think about kind of mainstay telehealth and they see challenges, there's actually unique things you can do with technology to actually decrease the workload that technology needs to do to make things like telehealth work. And so we did a lot of those early on and started to make them so that in other words, to get really practical, you can do a telehealth call with one bar of service. Now, if you need to do a dermatological assessment, something where you gotta snap a higher resolution image or something, you obviously need more and that changes the strategy in that particular study. So let me be clear, Stuart, the flip side of this is, and we do this all in-house globally, is if, if somebody doesn't have a device that meets even a minimum criteria in BYOD, we provision them one. So they get a thread device. And that can be a phone, it can be a tablet. We send sensors and wearables and medical devices all the time around the world. Um, but when you think about it, what you do is, and you're right, what you do in this world is we create a model called BYOD first about five years ago. BYOD first says in some of these studies where you don't provision, you go out and in the recruitment process with Matt, they're actually confirming what kind of devices this participant have. And if they don't have a device or they're not comfortable to use their own, you provision the gap. So you're being really giving people convenience so they can use their own technology, but also saying, but if you're not comfortable with that, I don't want to exclude you for that. I want to include you and make sure we solve that gap. And so you provision device. And what you'll find is even in rural areas where broadband's not well, LTE or equivalents of LTE in Europe are actually decent enough. Now, I say all that to tell you that typically covers, we're talking about like 98% of coverage. There are 2% of things that happen in the world, right? There's 2.5 million people in the US that paid for AOL dial-up last month. There are people that have really bad service because they live in a mountain. And I wanna just be really clear and I'll say it on behalf of Thread in our industry, there is very little we can do until the until broadband or until LTE coverage gets into those areas. But what I will tell you is this problem was really a big deal five and six and eight years ago when we were doing these decentralized studies. They have become less and less and less of a challenge in today's market. And so, Stuart, I know it's a long-winded answer, but I want to make sure we hit that because there's a lot of assumptions I think we naturally make, but we have to be really cautious to know that there are ways to close those gaps when we think operationally that way. So I just want to ask one clarification, and then I'll be quiet, at least for a while. I know China, India, Far East, all over the rest of the world. Are you sending devices there? Does the pharma send devices there? How do, how do those people get involved in clinical trials? So they can do BYOD because we're doing that in more than 50 countries, but, but there are some Asian PAC countries that actually don't prefer BYOD. They actually prefer provision devices, and we ship them there all the time. So, okay. so yeah, but what I would tell you, the important piece is not shipping devices or having a model that does that in a way. The important piece is understanding the um, uh, sort of your, what, what you call a that sort of digital framework in these countries, right? What's their level of service? What's the level of adoption? What's the level of Android versus iOS use? Like these components called digital enablement really do matter when you think of strategically about how to deploy these things. And so, Stuart, it's a it's a simple answer I'm giving you, but it is complex yeah. when you go around the world. But the key is, and you hit it, the key is we are not, we are inclusive in saying just because you don't have a device that meets criteria, we can solve that challenge for you so you're not excluded because of it. That's actually how we help diversity be achieved in studies as well. Thank you. Right. Matt, did you have anything to sort of add there? You know, obviously with the, the sort of physical and uh, the device and decentralized kind of model and methods that you've sort of implemented as well? 
Oh, I'll add this, John, John validated why he's more skilled to answer that question because he, he, he lives in that world a lot more than we do. And, and, and generally, um, I'm always amazed at the stat that John knows from, from running all the studies they do. I did not know some of those stats you just threw out, for example. But in terms of what we do on the front end, before you get into data collection, before you have the app you know, on your device or somebody shipping your device, it's about awareness, it's about education, it's about qualification and motivation. And so we focus on those categories. The technology by which we do that um, is, 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 is all browser-based, right? So we don't require any heavy lifting uh, prior to you know, getting, the, getting a patient to that, to that point in the process where they're ready to consent to the study or do their first office visit. So we try to make it lightweight. So as long as you have access to a browser, uh, then you can participate in these technologies. Um, but we focus more on the conversations that occur over them uh, in terms of, of assessing awareness and, and education, qualification and motivation than we do on the necessary technology, but we try to make a really small footprint there. Um, and then we, we leave it to the, the heavyweights like, like John and Fred that once they get into this study and now there's a need for data collection, now there's a need for study conduct, how is that achieved? And, and um, so I, I actually learned a ton when John was just answering that question. I wrote down two words, uh, I've written down a lot more, but Trust and flexibility are key um, from what John was saying previously. And I think that could be the key really to uh, enabling those who are either apprehensive or um, not knowledgeable about clinical trials. If we provide that trust and, that, and, then their and then flexibility to hit their need, which supports their trust. I think that's key. Yeah, I, th I think what you said there literally just kind of perfectly comes on to uh, our sort of summary before the Q&A. Uh, if you could give our audience one piece of advice to help improve or even begin, you know, their diversity and inclusion criteria for their clinical trials, what would it be? Create trust and flexibility. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, create them. Yeah. What's the starting point then, I guess, isn't it? It's the, them targets, sort of implementing it into the protocol. So John, if it's okay, I'll, I'll take a, a, a swab at this first. Um, you know, I think you always have to benchmark where you're at before you, you know where you want to be. And it, it sounds like baby steps, but it's actually very hard to benchmark. Once you benchmark yes. the engine to improve those benchmarks comes very naturally and very easily. I always find the biggest lift is trying to get the initial benchmark. And we are starting to see really great leadership from some very large large pharmaceutical companies who are just opening the doors on transparency and saying, this is where we're at. It's not where we want to be, but, but we're benchmarking ourselves. And, and that to me is an indication that they're going to hold themselves accountable. And I think it's the same for anybody in, in any role, including me and, 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 and John and others on the call today is you got benchmark where you're at first, know your starting point, um, and then start incrementally coming up with initiatives to improve. If you try out of the gate to say, we're not going to start this study until we hit, you know, the exact mix, you're going to be waiting a long time. But if you can start where you're at and, and start marching towards where you want to be, I think over time, we can, we can iterate that and get there together. Yeah, that's good, Matt. I think there's two, only two things I'd add is, you know, from our perspective, it, it does, we talked about, it starts with design, right? And I, I'd agree. I mean, we have a ton of sponsors, CROs, different customers coming in saying, hey, 
maybe not the, I don't think anybody is, I don't think anybody thinks they've arrived in this space, which is good because we haven't, right? We have a lot of work to do. We're still learning. We're still applying. It's still optimizing. It's still listening, right? So we're doing so much more work with patient insight panels and site insight panels to go, are we listening? Do we have this right? Because a lot of what we're talking about too, trust and transparency is different depending on the type of individual, the type of therapeutic area, the type of population. And so this is a very complex thing. And it's, it's equally complex to talk about. I always feel bad. Like we, I, I try to compartmentalize these things to, to give a clear point, but, yeah. but of course there's like a million caveats to these and I'm not getting any of this right. I'm getting it generally in the right category. And so what I would tell you is in design, um, you know, one of the things that we put in our design offering is when, when customers come in, they're thinking through a DCT, there are two clear points on there that are around how do we move inclusiveness and diversity? Here's some KPIs you can track, here's some models. It's a list of actions and steps we've seen work and semi-work in different studies. And what we ask, and here's the second point is, thinking about design is great, but also, as you mentioned, this crawl, walk, run principle, which is how we helped and still help customers today to think about DCTs, right? You don't have to go all in. You can kind of evolve and progress your work in this area and add more innovation ROI as you go. The same is true here. And so like we've got one customer that has been working on this for five years now. When they started this journey, one of their key points was, we need to be more inclusive in our study designs. We're not enrolling all the populations that use our product. And, and I applaud them. They were thinking about this very early. And what they did is they didn't come in and say, so, so give us 19 KPIs we can track to prove to our management team we did something. They came in and said, we want to really move the needle. Can we start with these three? Let's put them in. Let's ask participants at the beginning. Let's ask them at the middle. Let's ask them at the end. And let's measure them. And they went, these two are great. This one stinks. They got rid of this one and they moved the two and they added two more. And so I think we, you know, it's this whole, it's better to start than to wait for you to arrive. And, and I think us starting is the other key point that I think you hear loud and clear from Matt and I, I just couldn't agree more. That's really where we got to go. We have to do and just get doing because we're going to learn by doing, not by thinking and making PowerPoint. Oh, that's great. Um, so obviously, we're going to just go into our Q&A now from the chat. Uh, the first question is from Vidi. Uh, what are the one to two key barriers to sponsors moving forward with these solutions? John, if you want to take that one? Yeah, I'd say, you know, I think one barrier is um, was really timing. You know, I think the pandemic, I, I hate to blame that for things, but I think that really where there were a lot of big initiatives and inclusiveness and diversity. I think the pandemic had everybody have to focus on resilience and just keeping trials running. And so, so a lot of people who were really championing this had to come in and champion something very different. And now I see a lot of these discussions coming back to say, okay, we've gotten this, we're now moving in this model, how do we do it? So I think, I think for us, a lot of timing is right. So these conversations, we're not the only one having this conversation today because I think people are going, great, let's now focus and get this done. I would tell you though, the second thing I think is a, a little bit of a perceptional barrier in that we have to be, we have to do this all the same way perfectly across every country in our clinical trial. Um, and, and I think sometimes we just make this such a complex way to start, like we talked about before that we don't do it. So I, I think the reality is, is, is the, one of the biggest barriers we have right now is just figuring out where to start, right? And what is good enough because you get patient insights and you hear 20 things and you go, man, I want to do all 20. But the reality is you can't operationalize all 20 perfectly. And so making those hard decisions and then going, I think is, is actually a challenge that we have right now. And so, I, you know, there's a lots of other ones. Those are maybe two of the ones I'd start with. Matt, what, it, what would you add? I'll look at it slightly different. I, I definitely agree with you, John, on those two. I think um, it, looking at it from a different way, I think the incentives aren't there today 
Um, I think that, and, and maybe that's not a barrier, but it can certainly be an accelerator. Um, if there was some, uh, some impact to bringing your product, you know, finishing clinical trials or presenting your data to the regulatory authorities, and you hit some representation benchmarks for that study, there's ways to accelerate approval. There's ways to give more time to, um, uh, to patents. There's, I think there's, there could be incentives. And, and again, I'm not saying do those things. I'm just kind of throwing them out as ideas, but, but there's incentives that you could give to organizations that make them want to achieve that harder. Um, because I think until the incentives come in, if, if I put myself, you know, we deal with a lot of biopharmers, like I'm sure John does too, right? A lot of times there's a race to market. There is an indication there's a potential treatment. Multiple companies are racing to market to, to, to finish their clinical trials and, and, and get to an approval status. And when you're in that mode, um, your incentive is to get there as quickly as possible. And right now, if you meet the numbers of patients you need, you don't really have any barriers to getting there quickly. Um, so rather than you know, obstruct it with regulations that say it has to, I think one thing you could do is incent um, to try and bring representation and diversity into that thinking more. Um, but, but I know that today it's just, it's not ingrained in this race to market mentality where we're trying to bring a new drug or treatment to market. We're trying to maximize the time on market that we have for that uh, and trying to generate revenue from all the investment. And so there's just not an incentive there that's inherently built into the system to, to help companies. And I think that's, that's one I don't know if you call that a barrier, but I think it's a huge opportunity. Yeah, Matt, we've had a, another interesting uh, question for you as well from uh, Tina. She said, does your organization, organization sorry, work with, you know, like uh, grassroots foundations or various communities, um, you know, from more rural areas or, you know, different, different kind of backgrounds? Yeah, we're starting to look at that now. So that's a really good question. Um, in fact, before I jumped on this webinar, I was, I was talking with our head of trial strategy and I was asking her, you know, what, what are your thoughts? And, and she listed this as one of the top opportunities for us is to be more locally engaged from a recruitment perspective. It's hard to do that and think through that because everything we do is, is at large scale and large reach. You know, if you're in a trial, you're recruiting across 19 countries, it's hard to apply that local lens. Yeah. So I would say we're not doing that well today, but it is something that's top of mind for us to get into. And if, if the person that asked that question happens to be part of an organization um, that can facilitate that, I'd love to talk to you. Oh, that's great. Uh, we've also had another one from a James Dale who said, are there types of disease indications that are more or less applicable to using decentralized trials? And for, from a company perspective, you know, would like an oncology trial be suitable for a decentralized model? I don't know, uh, John, do you want to take this one? Uh, my answers changed significantly in the last seven years. Uh, even going back to 2012, we did the first one of these. We was all very strategic cardio, GI. It was very specific studies back in 2011, 2012 that started out in this DCT model. Today, what I would tell you is, you know, we've well covered across every therapeutic area. We have a study in, in every area. Some, you know, higher percentage because you tend to see respiratory, cardio, rare disease kind of were the early starters in DCT. Derm dermatology, ophthalmology tend to be those ones. Um, but quickly caught up. What I would say is I think when people think about DCT, they sort of think about there's a study and then there's a DCT study. And, and what I would tell you is just a quick, quick training here that those, those are um, just not actually correct. The way you think about DCT is DCT is a design option and you apply it to a study. 
And that study can be very decentralized or limited in its decentralized scope. And so what that means in the majority of studies you see in the middle, and I'll give you oncology as a good example. Oncology is a massive component of what we do. And people would go, no, it's not, not in decentralized trial. And I would actually completely tell you it is. And here's why, because the amount of data collection happening in between clinic visits and the amount of visits that are non-infusion or, or, or sort of drug related is significant. And so when you start to move those and change how visit structures are done with telehealth and remote work, you can actually reduce the amount of time people spend in clinic. So they're focused on those sort of high throughput, very complicated assessments. But the other 80% of things we've moved away from clinics. And what we're doing is we're taking stressful situations for participants with cancer, and we're helping them to make the study a little bit easier for them to participate in and not so stressful in certain days and time periods. And and so what I would say is um, when we look at DCT, it's, it's, it's the approach that matters. It's not a study design versus study design. It's how you use it. And that's how you can apply it to every therapeutic area there is. Great. Uh, we've had a, a quite nice sort of follow-up question from that as well. Uh, 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 Brad has written in uh, that he rarely sees frontline research staff, such as coordinators or site managers involved in some of these discussions. And um, that these are the people interacting with patients and subjects uh, executing the protocols every day. So how could they become more involved in the DCT conversation? Brad Hightower is 100% correct. And he knows this business really well. Um, what I would say is, you know, the thing we've tried to do, and again, not because we've arrived, we're perfect at it, but the thing we try to do is to engage people, right, is to get there. And then when you meet with researchers and sites and front, like, study coordinators, home health nurses, people involved in the study, you're actually conveying part of the operational strategy to them. You're not limiting it to the people doing it at a central stat, at a central team perspective. You're actually providing that. And I would say I've seen that. I've seen where we had, you know, um, we just did an investigator meeting and the whole presentation to all the sites was, here's what we're doing for inclusiveness. Here's what we're doing here to get to those frontline or the people doing the work at the sites. And I think that sponsor, that study is going to do a phenomenal job in that. But there's other studies equally that don't carve out time to do that. And I think that's a lesson learned that needs to be evolved. And so what I would highly recommend to Brad, I know our organization trying to do it with all the sites we partner with, but we need to think of this as a community. We need to make sure that when we think about these models, we're thinking that everybody understands these operational approach, every stakeholder in the clinical trial, not just the CRO team or the central team or Matt and my, our companies, right? That we're making sure everybody involved is getting it. So he's hundred percent right. We've got work to do there, but what's really interesting is when we do it, it's not like anybody goes, well, I'm now unengaged. The people you communicate to go, yes, thank you. Let's do this. And so I do think that there's a little bit of camaraderie that comes with that. So there's actually a huge benefit to doing it anyways. And, and I think we have to tell ourselves that and we have to make sure we tell ourselves that as an industry to do a better job of, being vocal about it at, with every stakeholder in the process. Doesn't, doesn't the budget, the study budget also enable, if we thought about the design of the trial in advance to involve um, that role and that function? Matt knows this better than anybody. You know, if you can recruit faster because you've done a better job of building trust and communicating and open up sphere, make sure it's communicated to just cutting a month off your recruitment timeline. You've not just done that. You've saved a lot of money. So I hear you, Stuart, hundred percent. It's, it's, it's not like there's a disincentive to do it. And it's not like there's this mega cost associated with, well, if I want to be inclusive in my study, I now got to drum up another $3 million. It's not actually the case. It's just, so I, I think you're hundred percent right. There is a lot, the benefits are very, very simply outweigh 
I would just tell you that it's the complexity of doing it that takes time and effort and thinking when you've already got to run a clinical trial and add this up, you know, I do want to be clear. That is a lot of, it's extra thinking, extra work, extra planning, but it's valuable because like you said, it cuts timeline off when done right. And you know, when the ultimate um, uh, outcome is achieved. Thank you. Great. Thanks guys. We've got uh, just time for about two more questions. So we've had a really interesting one here from uh, Nelia. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Sorry. She said, where in the industry are we seeing uh, tailoring within the sort of DCT model to different cultural groups? You know, for example, like uh, in terms of languages or phrasing, uh, you know, like we mentioned, dermatology, skin color of images, things like that. What have you, you know, to try and create that trust? What, what kind of things have you guys seen in that kind of educational material, if anything? We work a lot in that space on the recruitment side. A lot of what we do too is, is, is site brochures and stuff. So there's a whole creative aspect to what Trialby does. Um, you know, there's, there's multiple ways to answer that. I think that's a really good question. When we get a protocol, the first thing that we do is we develop profiles for the patients. And we try to look at that across gender. We try to look at that across ethnic background, across socioeconomic background. And and we'll come up with multiple patient profiles that we want to put an empathetic message in front of that causes them to notice it, right? And so um, from a creative perspective and, and you know, call them ads or advertisements, it's the messaging and it's the graphical treatment that goes along with a particular profile. You know, for example, we're, rec- you know, we're recruiting for a Parkinson's study right now. Um, and we had a couple of different creatives go out uh, based on personas and, and the persona that really, really came in well, based on a creative material was focusing on trying to pick something up like a cup of coffee with the hand, because that was a pain point as opposed to, um, we had another persona where we had, you know, a loving couple and just the caregiver taking care of their partner. And so it's kind of two people, you know, kind of with an arm around each other type of situation or, or helping them with a movement. And so that, that focus on the actual issue that's causing pain for the patient um, d- drove a lot more in terms of people noticing it and wanting to learn more. So I think the question is spot on in terms of the creative aspects. And you, you could easily apply that to diversity as well. The second area that I, and I really liked that the question asked this was around the language. And so it's so important. And this is something that, um, Sometimes it, it is a contentious between us and the customer. It's so important that the language and the educational level that you're speaking about um, be understood very easily by a patient because you get all kinds of different ages, all kinds of different educational backgrounds. And we do tend to be over, overly scientific or overly confusing or complex with our words. And so this can show up in both when you're reading the material to, to have awareness about what this clinical trial is doing but one of the other areas we look at from an analytics perspective is the questions. So a lot of times there's a call to action, do I qualify? <clears throat> and it's an online set of questions. When we look at time spent on questions, dropout rates on questions to understand where someone is giving up because they think their answer might immediately disqualify them or they don't understand the question. Um, and sometimes we'll take those questions out and we'll move them to that nurse interview that we do uh, because that's a, a better place to, to walk through it. So. I, I think language is extremely important. I think the creatives and the messaging, the empathetic messaging is really important to getting noticed. It's a crowded world. So how do you get noticed for your clinical trial? And then how do you have a message that's empathetic to what what that patient might be living with? 
Great, that was a great answer. Thank you very much. And just we've got one final question now as well. So from uh, Lola, we had the COVID pandemic brought to light the distrust uh, within the diverse community when it came to engagement. Uh, what strategic initiatives and also was the you know acceleration uh, of the adoption of technologies? Uh, what can they do to educate, create awareness, and how can that help with the recruitment? Yeah, I'll go first really quick. What I would say is some of the things you mentioned already, right? This ability to do all these things we talked about around trust and transparency and pieces that Stuart called out are 100% correct. And DCTs actually, I would, I would argue, gave us actually a better opportunity to do that remotely than when someone comes in, gets handed a piece of paper, has to walk out. Actually, there were a lot of advantages to being able to take time. What I would say, though, is the ability, all the work we did in virtual visits and telehealth, right, which is just a common thing, the, being able to not put a new person on the other end of that call, but be able to put the site on the other end of a telehealth visit was the thing that actually moved trust faster because they, this Dr. Smith was on the phone and she would say, I'm going to be your primary physician for this program and we could get to that. And what the pandemic did is it forced people forced us to act that way and get the benefit of it. Doesn't mean it solved everything. Doesn't mean it's all perfect, but it did change that landscape. And so I think a lot of the lessons and a lot of the application, a lot of the data that we've been publishing that you see resilience and better recruitment, better retention, better engagement that happened in DCT models versus traditionally designed studies during the pandemic speaks for itself. Data's out there. You can go to the website and you can see it. But the reality is, is it did it because it's very practical because it's still about humans, still about us. Being able to say, I'm here, you can trust me, let's talk about this. I want you to participate in this clinical trial. Here's what, here's what it's going to look like. Here's how it would feel. And I think our ability to facilitate a better version of that is what we're trying to do because we already have experts. They're called researchers. They're called sites. We need to augment and help and support them to make these initiatives come to life, to give them these additional sort of um, opportunities to provide to participants to gap that trust because there are trust issues and we still have them. My mother just figured out what her son's been doing for 20 years because during the pandemic, she attended her first telehealth call and she went, that's not so bad. She's done all these telehealth. So what I'm trying to say is, is we've got to lean into this. We haven't arrived, but it did change and we've got to take advantage of the very few silver lines we've had from this ultra moment we've had uh, in our world. Matt, what would you add? Please go for it. Well, I, I, I love that, John. I love that about your mom too. And, and I would add that we're in a great moment in time, right? Sadly, COVID was, was a, is a terrible pandemic. But for our industry, for awareness around clinical trials, for trust around clinical trials, despite, you know, the do I get vaccinated or not, whole debate that's playing out, um, the fact that it was on the front page of every news cycle, the fact that people are asking each other, did you get Moderna? Did you get Pfizer? Did you get AstraZeneca? Did you get J&J? Like they're, they're, they know the names of these companies that are producing the vaccine. Um, and the fact that they, they see it as something that helped as opposed to something that was for a guinea pig. And I think that was a, a, a huge trust piece in general. Um, you know, leaving, there's certainly other trust issues with diversity, but, but just across the board for clinical trials, I think that belief, why would I want to be a guinea pig? Um, I think that the way that the vaccines have played out has put us at a great moment in time to build upon the fact that clinical research is, is a care option. It can be a care option path for people. Now, obviously phase one with healthy volunteers, maybe not, but as you get into phase two and phase three studies, um, those clinical research studies help people. They help save lives. They help them deal with situations that they're struggling with today. Um, I have a lot of disease in my family and, 
and and one of them was a daughter who had childhood cancer. She had rhabdomyosarcoma, and and my wife and I credit clinical trials for saving her life because her odds were very small. And today she's you know healthy and twenty, and she's in college. But you know we had access to a great institution right down the road, uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, who's a leader in pediatric oncology, and we had high trust for the doctor there. And so we just did whatever he told us to. Um, and but but you know, largely, I think the view before COVID was that clinical trials are experimental. And, and of course, there's truth in that. I think there's an opportunity in our moment in time that clinical trials are an option of care that actually help. And I think because we got vaccines out in an experimental fashion, that helped people, um, you know, be defense, have defenses against the disease of COVID, then, or the, the, then I think that we really have brought that to light. And so I think trust is, is at an all-time high, if you ask me, and it's a great launching point to build on for all of these different aspects, including diversity. That's Yeah, that's perfect. That was a great place to sort of uh, end and wrap things up now. Uh, thank you all so much. You've been a fantastic panel. Uh, we will also be releasing a downloadable PDF of all of today's major takeaways, and I wanted to thank everybody in the audience for joining us. Uh, of course, also, if you have any recruitment needs within CRO, Biotech, or Pharma, please get in touch. You can find us on LinkedIn or get in touch by emailing me at elizabeth.edmonds at charltonmarris.com. Uh, thank you so much to my guests and uh, yeah, goodbye. Have a great day. Thank you so much, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thank you, guys.